Welcome to The Accelerators. Here for you are a series of tried and tested and proven real world ideas to help you create and enjoy a business and a life of choice. The Accelerators, because success loves speed. And now we come to the interview of the month and our guest is Bruce Cryer. I met Bruce when he was speaking at an event where I was also speaking and I was fascinated by his presentation and his ideas. I'd already been aware of the Heart Math program and so it was brilliant to actually see it explained on stage. I've used the technique and it works for me and I'm looking forward to finding out even more. Let me tell you a bit about Bruce Cryer. Bruce has spent the last 30 years researching and teaching innovative approaches to maximising health and organisational performance. He was named President and CEO of HeartMath LLC in 2000, having helped launch the non-profit Institute of HeartMath with the founder, Doc Childry, in 1991. For eight years prior, he served as Vice President for a biotech company. Bruce was the key architect of programs that incorporate HeartMath's innovative biomedical research into practical tools and strategies to enhance health, performance, creativity, innovation and productivity for both the individual and the organisation. He has successfully guided HeartMath programs at organisations such as Duke University Health System, Stanford Medical Centre, NASA Goddard Space Flight Centre, Motorola, Hewlett-Packard and dozens of hospital systems across the US. In 2007, Bruce was named one of the top 50 thought leaders in personal excellence by Leadership Excellence magazine. He is co-author with Doc Childry of the book From Chaos to Coherence, The Power to Change Performance. Bruce is also lead author of the Harvard Business Review article entitled Pull the Plug on Stress. Since 1997, Bruce has been an adjunct professor at Stanford Business School's executive program. He's on the board of the Friends of the National Library of Medicine, a member of the Adaptive Business Leaders Healthcare Roundtable, has been featured speaker across the US in the Lessons in Leadership Distinguished Speaker Series, and is on the faculty of both the Global Institute for Leadership Development and UCSF's Centre for Health Professionals, and of course has lectured worldwide. A former actor, singer and dancer on the New York stage, Bruce starred in more than 700 performances of the internationally acclaimed musical The Fantastics in New York City. Bruce is going to explain the basics of the HeartMath program for us and give us the process to use. So let's go to that interview now. Well, hello, Bruce, and thanks very much indeed for sparing the time to be on The Achiever's Edge. How's life with you at the moment? Things are going very well here, Peter. We're having a lovely spring day in California, and I'm glad to be home. Well, I'm I'm sure you are, because I know you've been doing lots and lots of travelling. Now, when I was listening to you in London, that conference we were both speaking on, you were explaining about this unusual word, HeartMath. So, before we get into this five-stage process, if I remember correctly, can you start by explaining some background to HeartMath? Sure. In 1991, the HeartMath organization was created here in the States by a visionary gentleman named Doc Childry. And the word HeartMath, as you point out, is a bit unusual. It's really a combination of the science of understanding how the heart impacts our brain, our overall health, our well-being, and especially our performance in any aspect of life and work. And as you can tell from the word heart being at the front of the name HeartMath, we've especially focused on the physiology of the heart and how our emotions play a very dramatic role in not only how our heart functions, but how the whole system is affected by what our heart is doing. So over these last 17 years, we've done a tremendous amount of both clinical research to understand the mechanisms of how our heart and brain communicate, to understand the science behind that, if you will. 
the math part of the word is really the step-by-step process of how to live a life that is more balanced, more effective, more in sync with our heart, if you will. So heart math is a system of techniques and now also technology to assist people in the process of not only reducing their stress, but also improving their health, their performance, and their fulfillment, really, in all aspects of life. Well, if it can do that, and I know that it can, and it's doing it for some very well-known people, which I'm sure we can talk about as well, then it's obviously something to find out about, as you would obviously agree. So can we talk about how stress impacts a person's mind? Could you explain that to me? Sure. Let me draw a visual picture for your listeners. I live in the state of California, and one of the things our state is known for, among many, is earthquakes. And most of your listeners have probably seen a picture of what a seismograph looks like, a kind of a very jagged, chaotic-looking pattern when an earthquake is happening. Well, it turns out that the human heart beats in a very similar way to an earthquake whenever we are feeling stressed. Now, the stress could be simply time pressure. It could be traffic. It could be a feeling of uh, rushing because of a deadline. It could be just a general feeling of anxiety that we don't have the resources we need, we're worried about money, whatever the issue may, may be. So our hearts beat in these rather chaotic patterns at any of those times when we're feeling either extreme stress or even mild stress. Conversely, when we are feeling in the zone, uh, in the flow, as psychologists would call it, when we're loving what we're doing, enjoying our work, enjoying our recreational time, our family time, at those times our heart beats in a very different pattern, a very smooth wave. It's called a sine wave by scientists, a very smooth, orderly-looking pattern, dramatically different than when we're feeling stress. Now, researchers learned in the late 60s that whatever the heart is doing in terms of how it's beating and how it's processing information, that pattern is then sent north to the brain, affecting how our brains process information. So you can imagine the chaotic pattern probably isn't very good for the brain, and indeed that's the case. And you can imagine that the smooth pattern is probably very good for the brain, and indeed that's the case. So researchers coined the term cortical inhibition to describe what happens to our cortex, which is the kind of the smart part of our brain, if you will. That part of our brain is literally inhibited when we're stressed out. And that happens partly because our hearts are in a more chaotic rhythm. Conversely, when we're enjoying what we're doing, enjoying a beautiful sunset, even in the shower and, <laughs> and have no distractions and no interruptions, all of these times we're feeling good, our heart beats in a better rhythm, that information is sent north, and they term that cortical facilitation meaning our brains can function better. We can have the bright idea. We can have the creative breakthrough. We can take a broader view of a decision instead of just the short-term pressure of a decision. So it turns out moment by moment how we cognitively process our world, how we think about our life, how we think about our business is impacted by our emotion, which is impacted by these rhythms of our heart. Well, that makes a great deal of sense. So if I've got it in my mind correctly, then, there's a highway, a super highway, if we like, between the heart and the brain, and the rhythms of the heart affect the ability of the brain to function effectively. But my question is, is it a two-way highway? Absolutely. I think for the last 30, 40 years at least, there's been an enormous amount of research on the one direction of the highway, which is the brain down. And so through that research, it was learned that the brain affects the rate of the heart, the brain, through its information highway, as you put it, the superhighway, is really managing about 90% of the processes in the body. 
So we've known for many years that the brain is this kind of amazing computer that can manage an enormous complexity of biological processes inside us without us having to think about it. We don't have to tell our hearts when to beat or how fast to beat. We don't have to tell our digestive system what biochemicals to secrete. We don't have to tell our lungs the proper balance of gases to maintain for our own clarity and health. It's all handled unconsciously for us through our brain in this information highway. What was newer information is how much data that the brain is actually receiving from the heart and other parts of the body. So the fact that there is a two-way communication is more surprising and more dramatic than we believed until fairly recently. Is that when we talk about this word stress, which seems to come up into conversation and the media all of the time these days, is there good stress and bad stress? Well, yes, that term uh, or that concept has been popular for at least the last decade and perhaps longer I try to keep it very simple. I think what the, the researchers who coined the term good stress were trying to describe was anytime a situation is challenging to us, but if we are excited by the challenge, researchers call that good stress. Well, in my view, the average person doesn't think of stress as ever being good. No. <laughs> <laughs> stress, stress is when things are going badly and you know, we, we're feeling frustrated, we're feeling like we don't have time, we don't have resources, we, you know, something's not right. And indeed, when the body is experiencing stress in its pure form, we're experiencing a threat in some way. And so our bodies begin to churn through all kinds of biochemical processes, which in the long run and even the short run impair our brain function, uh, speed up the aging process, etc. So while I understand the concept of good stress, to me, those times when we are challenged by something but as I say, rise to the occasion or feel the excitement of that challenge, our bodies are not really interpreting that in stress as if it was also a challenge, but we were frightened by the challenge or overwhelmed by the challenge. That's really what the stress response that researchers talk about is. Could we go briefly through the five-stage process and then perhaps come back to it and look at each stage in a bit more detail without giving away the ranch, obviously, but explaining to people how they actually use that and maybe some examples from some of particularly these famous golfers and what they're experiencing? One of the fundamental principles of heart math is, yes, indeed, there is an enormous amount of stress in the whole world, and while each person has his or her own unique version and way as it plays out, and each country has their own version and each region has its own, etc., there are certain common elements to all human beings, and it has to do with how we perceive our life. One of the challenges when you talk to people about stress is that many people have become so used to a certain level of stress they don't even think it's stress anymore. They just say, well, that's the way life is, or my job's never going to get any better, so uh, I kind of feel hopeless, but it's not really stress. It's just the way it is. So the first step, really, is to help people become simply more aware of the stress that they have. And one of the ways I like to describe this is it's a very common experience for people when they go on holiday that it can often take two, three, maybe even four days for you to really feel like you can relax. In other words, our bodies have been so keyed up all year long until we finally get that week or two holiday that it takes some time for our bodies to kind of decompress and finally get into a more relaxed, more balanced state. So the message here is that we have to be more aware before holiday time. In other words, we're having signals all day long, all week long, which we for the most part ignore. And part of it is that we don't realize by ignoring that that we're actually hurting our chances of greater success, greater fulfillment, greater health. So the first stage is really simply becoming more aware. We teach a set of techniques which are designed not only to help increase that level of self-awareness, but also to then learn how to transform the stress response into a more balanced, more positive, more productive response. 
So stage two is learning how to transform that stress response. And just one little factoid that may be surprising to your listeners, the stress response that we all experience perhaps dozens of times a day, it could be in reaction to traffic, in reaction to an email. In fact, I love to give the example of simply seeing the name of somebody in your email inbox, and you can go through a stress reaction before you've even opened the email. And yeah, this is a true, very common experience. Well, any of these standard garden variety stress reactions begins a chain reaction of about 1,400 biochemical events inside our bodies. And that's not subtle, even though we may at the time kind of write it off as, oh, I didn't get stressed, I just I got annoyed briefly, but that wasn't stress. Well, yes, it was. Your body was processing a stress event, and unless we transform that reaction later, we are living with the consequences of those 1,400 biochemical events. So stage one, become aware. Stage two, learn to transform. Now, one of the keys that we have learned, and many people learn this, in, whether it's through breathing exercises they've learned or through yoga classes they may have taken or biofeedback they may have done, our breath indeed is one of the tools to help us neutralize that stress reaction and begin to shift into a more productive state. So one of the things that we teach is to help people begin to just, at various times through the day, start to regulate their breathing, get it to a smoother, a little bit deeper uh, rhythm. Now, breathing alone, however, is not really the answer because if you were you know, kind of hyperventilating all day long, that wouldn't do you a whole lot of good yeah. because ultimately you need to, we need to change our perspective of what's causing our stress in the first place. And what we've learned through that research is that to truly transform the stress reaction so we're not weighed down by that, all those biochemicals that are churning in our body, to really transform that requires a shift in emotion. And so what we teach people to do is to literally focus on something in our life that we love or something that we care about. It could be the memory of the time we spent in Spain on the beach and how lovely that was and how relaxing that was. It could be the experience this week of playing around with our kids and the fun and the joyful feeling we may have had. It could be skiing in the Alps or in the Rockies. Or, in other words, people can pick any trigger or any anchor for that process. The main thing is that they feel it, that they relive that experience in a very genuine way again. And that could be a pet. That could be the trigger point for that. So self-awareness is stage one. Learning to transform is stage two by kind of neutralizing that negative reaction that's going on in the body. But then the third stage, which is really the key part of this, is learning to shift into a more positive emotional state. And here's the irony. We all have experiences in our life we love to reflect on at times that was a, a favorite vacation or the closeness we feel to our, our daughter or our parent or a friend. Those give us energy. They give us rejuvenation. They give us a feeling of appreciation for our life. And yet, because the world is going so fast and there's so many inputs that are demanding our attention through technology, through meetings, through whatever our life brings us, it is often hard to remember to take time to appreciate the things that are actually relatively good about our life. So we get stuck on this treadmill of feeling negative and feeling overwhelmed and feeling pressured. And the capacity that all human beings have to appreciate and to broaden their perspective kind of gets squeezed out of the picture. So this step of focusing on positive emotion is both vital to our own well-being and our own sense of personal value and worth, but it's also essential biologically. It's how we balance our system. Ironically, when we were, you know, our ancestors hundreds of thousands of years ago, whose lives were very much about survival, real survival every day, I mean, not just the fake survival of getting worried about an email that's hitting us the wrong way, in those days, you had to go hunt for your food. Well, if the food you were hunting was a man-eating tiger, 
one of three things could happen. It could grab you and have lunch with you. <laughs> well, that's easy. You're game over. Number two is you could fight to the finish and the tiger runs off injured and so do you. And so you come back to the tribe empty-handed. Or, best case, you fight and kill the tiger and bring it home. And now you have food for a month and you have skins you can use to clothe the tribe, etc. So after the fight comes the celebration. Biologically speaking, we're designed to do that. If life is going to be challenging, biologically, we're supposed to balance that out through a celebration, through appreciation. Our body is designed to go through those, the yin-yang, if you will, the up and the down. In today's world, because it is so high speed and so many demands, few of us really takes the time to celebrate, to appreciate, to step back and say, wow, I did a great job on that project that I spent the last six weeks of my life on. We need to take a moment and really appreciate that. Biologically, our systems require that, and yet we forget how important that is, or perhaps we never knew how important that is. So this process of engaging the positive emotion is critical, both for our own sense of personal well-being, but it's critical biologically. It's how we're designed. And unless we can take some proactive efforts to periodically through a day step back and say, you know what, it's a spectacular day today. I don't care that I spent six hours in the O'Hare airport until 1.30 in the morning two nights ago. Yeah. It's a beautiful day here. Here's something I can enjoy now. So that process is really critical. Bruce, that makes so much sense. Now, it goes further than that, doesn't it? Because then we're looking at ourselves, is there a better alternative or change in perspective? And then we've got to get into the idea of breaking the stress habit. Could you explain that to me in a little more detail? Yes, the stress habit really is an insidious one. Over years of our life, and I'm in my mid-50s, some of your listeners may be in their 30s or 40s, they may not have experienced as many years of stress, although they could have had more extreme stress than perhaps things that I've had to deal with. But our bodies and our brains do habituate to the stress that we feel in our lives. This has been striking in research with small children who have had abusive upbringings, and their brains have learned that abuse is normal. And it appears that, in many cases, uh, children who have had some form of abuse, it could simply be emotional abuse, let alone physical, that that has become normal to them in terms of how their brains process. So they tend to be sometimes more attracted to relationships in adulthood, which are, again, going to be abusive because that seems normal, that's familiar to them. So our brains literally create circuitry. These habits are underpinned by actual circuitry that our brains are forming in response to what life brings us. So habits have a biological basis. The bad news is they have a biological basis. <laughs> the good news is we can repattern these patterns, these neural circuitry, if you will, and the most powerful thing we have yet discovered to do that is positive emotion. So it turns out in people who have studied addictive behavior, whether it's alcohol abuse, uh, drug addiction, etc., invariably it has to do with building a new reservoir of positive emotional experience. We are so drawn back biologically, let alone psychologically, to what we are familiar with and what seems to have given us satisfaction or at least has been familiar to us in our past. And that can take some energy to kind of rewire our system, if you will. The good news is how the human system is designed is to function at a high level of personal fulfillment and well-being. So even if we've gotten off track in our early adulthood through you know, getting, having one stressful job or a stressful relationship after another, even if that's the case, still hidden within our own physiology and our own heart is the power to change that to get back to a point of real balance and real fulfillment again. So while on the one hand we have learned through the research that there's more complexity to a habit than just 
you know, a psychological dimension to a habit. There is this biological component. On the other hand, we have the power in our heart especially to reprogram those habits in a much more powerful way than most of us even imagined. And when I talk about the heart now, I talk both about the physiological dimensions of the heart, its electrical functioning, its rhythmic functioning, but also what would be called the emotional dimensions or maybe even the spiritual dimensions. It's no accident that every culture of the world virtually and virtually every major religion has revered the heart as the source of wisdom, as the source of courage, bravery, intuition. You know, If there's one thing that most of the religions of the world agree upon, it's how important the heart is to human experience. So part of our organization's work and why we call ourselves HeartMath, back to your first question, is that we looked at sort of modern society and said, to a great degree, that knowledge has been lost. We no longer revere the heart. It is now viewed as a pump. It's the stuff of Valentine's Day and sweet cards on birthdays, but it's either a simplistic model of the emotional dimensions of the heart or it's a pump, but it's not much more than that. And yet research would tell us it's dramatically more than that. It has a very powerful rhythmic dimension, which, as I mentioned earlier, affects how our brains process. It has a very powerful electrical dimension. It turns out the heart electrically is about 60 times stronger than the brain in terms of the output of the the heart generates electrically. The heart biochemically also produces hormones. We used to believe only could be produced in the brain, but it turns out, no, the heart produces them as well. So what's emerged over the last 10 or 15 years is a very new picture of the heart, more akin to what was written about in the Bible or in the ancient Buddhist texts or in ancient Hindu literature, that the heart indeed is the center of much of our fulfillment, of much of our even our biological activity. And so what has emerged is this idea that the heart is perhaps our greatest ally in being able to reprogram old habits that are no longer serving us. It is also true that many people, when life gets extremely tough, that's when they finally say, i got to talk to my heart about this. <laughs> we often teach our children, play with your heart, you know, sing with your heart. You know, We know this in our cultural language that the heart is somehow important, and yet when it comes down to it, we tend to think, well, that's kind of a sweet concept, but basically the heart's just a pump. It's all about the brain. The brain's everything. Well, the brain's amazing, but it's getting a lot of information, <laughs> too. It's not generating all of that itself. And the heart is, it turns out, an incredibly important part of that whole process of uncovering and unlocking and unblocking the habits that are hampering our progress for the future. Bruce, just fascinating information, absolutely fascinating. Look, we're coming right to the end of the interview, so let me ask you this one final question for our time together this time. If somebody was interested in finding out more about HeartMath, where should they go? There are so many applications of the HeartMath approach in the world of golf, in the world of students and test anxiety, in the world of business performance and effectiveness. In the UK, we work with an organization called Hunter Kane, who are our licensee. To get more information, go to their website, which is www.huntercane, that's K-A-N-E, huntercane.com. HeartMath is a U.S.-based organization. Outside the U.K., to get information, it's heartmath.com. We also have a tremendous amount of research information, so those of you who are intrigued to learn more about the science behind it, you can reach us through www.heartmath.org. Bruce Cryer. Thank you so much for spending so much time on The Achiever's Edge. It really has been a pleasure. Thank you, Bruce. Peter, I thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. Look forward to another time. 
So, what can we take from what Bruce had to say in that interview? Here's my take on it. Simply stated, use the HeartMath program. The five stages are to recognise and disengage. In other words, recognise what's happening and disengage your stressful thoughts. Breathe through your heart, invoke a positive feeling, ask yourself, is there a better alternative, and then note the change in perspective. If you want to get more information about the HeartMath program and its benefits for you, then you can get them at the websites that Bruce mentioned. They are www.hunterkane.co.uk and www.heartmath.org. That's H-E-A-R-T-M-A-T-H, heartmath.org. If you've enjoyed our session today, why not head over to our website where we have loads of resources on product creation, on sales, on marketing, and of course, on personal success. That's at theaccelerators.club.com. I'll see you there.